pray one more time. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill can't be hidden, nor, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine that, uh, before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Don't think that I came to, to destroy the Torah, the law, or the prophets. I didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, You fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell.
And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Furthermore, it's been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, don't swear at all, neither by heaven, for it's God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you can't make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you. And from him who wants to borrow from you, don't turn away. You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Father, I... I I know that that we need wisdom. I'm confident as I read through this text, among others, that there are places in our lives that you are wanting to work. the great physician would take your scalpel, the scalpel of your spirit, and you would cut down into us to remove from us the cancerous sin, all those things that are still in rebellion to your nature, to your character. We trust that you've forgiven us because of Jesus. We pray that you would continue that good work in us that you would continue to breathe into us health, that we would be holy even as you are holy. As Jesus says, that we would be perfect just as you are perfect.
We need you, Father. We need you desperately. We need you. Would you teach us not to murder today? Please. Would you soften our hearts? Father, I thank you for our fathers, those with us, and uh, those who aren't. We thank you for the many ways they have taught us about life, whether through their uh, their encouragement or their discipline, their correction, or, or whether through their own failures. And we pray that you would give us wisdom to love them and as fathers to help each other. <laughs> Please, Lord, help us to serve one another. Put in us new hearts full of love and gentleness and patience and kindness, Lord. Words that too often aren't associated with fathers or men. And yet they are the reality of your character. So would you please work in us, I pray, that we would be holy. Please do it in Jesus' name, my Father. Amen. 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 So, murder. <laughs> murder, murder, murder. Okay, we're starting a section of the Sermon on the Mount now where Jesus is going to look at some things that, remember he's talking to a group of Jews, essentially, right, to the nation of Israel. He, there are crowds of people that are beginning to follow him now, and this is where the Sermon on the Mount takes place. And he's teaching them about true righteousness and teaching them that they need to trust in him, okay? So what he's going to do is he's going to run through sections of the Law of Moses and things that they had been taught... And instead of referring to other rabbis, instead of referring to other teachers as an appeal to authority for what he wanted them to know, which is a very common form of teaching, a very common form of, of uh, dialogue or argumentation, right, is the appeal to authority. We can say, well, the reason why this is this way is because, you know, Dr. So-and-so said so, right? And, and it may be some uh, person who is well studied in some field. While there may be some benefit to those credentials, the reality is that if something is logical, it should apply whether or not Dr. So-and-so said it. Um, logic applies regardless of someone's credentials, right? So instead of appealing to authority, which was the common practice of rabbis and teachers, they would say, Rabbi so-and-so says this, or Rabbi such-and-such, or the Talmud, or the Mishnah says this, right? They would quote different parts of the writings of the scribes or the elders of Israel. Jesus uses himself as the authority. And this is why when we get to the end of it, the people are like, whoa, we've never heard anybody teach like this. Because he teaches as one with authority. Okay? And the, now the basis of them saying that is what we find here in this section where Jesus is saying, here's the stuff you've been taught before. Now I say to you. Now Jesus squarely puts himself by doing so in a position of authority. <laughs> I am the one telling you. I am the one saying this to you. He's not appealing to anyone else to give himself credential, right? to give himself the precedent to say anything. Jesus is who he is, you guys. 
He's going to make some claims later on that, of course, result in him getting killed um, by appealing to himself as the authority and then saying that he and the Father are one, by suggesting that even before Abraham was alive, he was alive. This really ticked off the religious leaders in Israel. <laughs> and so they plotted against him. I mean, among other things, there were other traditions of the elders that he purposefully offended. Okay? And it didn't go so well. Um, but one of the things that angered Jesus was the reality that the people who were supposed to be or were essentially the gatekeepers of God's kingdom, they were supposed to be the ones opening the door for people. Jesus had said to the Jews, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its seasoning, its flavor, it's good for nothing but to be thrown out. And of course, that's what would happen with the nation of Israel as they rejected their Messiah. when you light a lamp, you, you put it up on a lampstand so it gives light to the whole house. You don't hide it under a bushel. No. I'm going to let it... Ch- okay. <laughs> right? You don't, you don't do that. Right? <clears throat> Those who were supposed to be the gatekeepers opening the door into the majesty and presence of God were instead coming up with rules about why everyone else couldn't get in, but they were good enough. And it also just so happened that they had set up all of these great systems that also allowed them to reap financial benefits from the rules that they made. (laughs) In fact, this was so prevalent that one time Jesus, he did it twice actually, he went into the temple and he saw all the stuff that was happening there how it become a place of merchandise, and it made him so angry. One time he did leave, and then he came back with a whip. Not overcome with his anger, not losing control, completely in control. And he drove out all of those who were exchanging coins for exorbitant rates and selling these pre-inspected animals. It was a common thing, right? In order for you to uh, offer a sacrifice to God, you had to have an animal that had been inspected by the priest. And of course, you'd bring yours and they'd say, oh, sorry, there's a blemish there. Sorry, guys. It was a great system. Oh, but we have these pre-inspected lambs over here that you can buy, right? They're only $29.99 or whatever, right? (laughs) Right? There's more, right? It was this system that had been set up to keep people away from the presence of God. This religious ordeal. And it angered him so much. Later on, we get to Matthew 23. You will hear the language with which Jesus speaks of the religious leaders. And it's the strongest language he uses with anyone. They were to be welcoming people into the presence, into the kingdom of God. But instead, they were fabricating rules that God never said to keep people away. And then to show themselves as if they were holy instead. Now, as Jesus turns to the law of Moses here, he begins to explain to us that even in the law, we see the heart of God. But the keeping of the Torah, the keeping of the law, was much more than just don't murder people. This is where we're going with this today. It wasn't just don't murder in fact, one of the reasons why we know this is that in the law of Moses, if you did kill somebody, you could seek refuge, you could seek asylum in a city of refuge. 
Okay, there were uh, certain cities that were set aside, and you would leave wherever your hometown was or wherever it was that you committed the act, and you would go to a city of refuge, and there you would have the opportunity to plead your case. But one of the things that was required um, for capital punishment to be executed in the case of, of someone's death was whether or not it had been known that you hated someone before. And this brings us to what Jesus says about murder. You see, if you killed somebody and it was known in the community that you hated that dude, sorry, bro, that's a capital offense. And the community then was to take up stones and to stone you. Another interesting thing about this is that capital punishment was instituted first by God through Noah after the flood. It's an interesting thing to me when you examine uh, what happened to those who murdered before the flood, essentially the punishment was exile. We might think of that as prison, a life sentence. You are exiled from the community, right? You receive that life sentence because you've taken someone's life. Think of, of Cain, think of Lamech, right, in those early stories in Genesis. But then something happens right after that, right? And what happens right after that is that wickedness abounds everywhere. And God says that every thought of the intent of every person's heart is only evil continually. And it broke the heart of God. So now after the flood, God institutes a new rule. If you take a man's life, by man your life is to be taken. Now, this idea was then spoken of further in the Law of Moses, where God says, every time he mentions the idea of capital punishment, it's always coupled with this, this idea where God says, you will put evil away from you. Okay? And this is sort of the foundation, the basis of this reality of capital punishment, of executing those who are uh, guilty of certain things. One of the things that I love about the Law of Moses that we take very lightly, I, I think obviously too lightly in our community, is that one of the capital crimes in the Torah, in the law, was, among other things, one of them was rape. And in fact, God even explains why that is, in that he says it's, it's the same punishment as, as, you get the same punishment as if you had murdered somebody, if you raped someone. Because it's as if you did murder them. Uh, and I... I, I read that and just thought, man, God views, values women. Values them. Of course, rape doesn't only happen to women, but in the context of the Torah, that's primarily what's being spoken of. Okay. <clears throat> After having said that he didn't come to abolish the law, to destroy it, but instead to fulfill it. And we talked about this the past couple of weeks, how Jesus indeed fulfilled the law. So the Messiah is the end of the law for righteousness. What we did talk about last week was that in the law, we do see the heart of God. The law is spiritual. The law is beneficial. The Torah, the scriptures, the writings, okay? So he moves into this next section here, and he says this, You've heard that it was said to those of old, <clears throat> You shall not murder. Obviously, it's one of the ten, the big ten, right, we think of, right? You shall not murder. Uh, twice, uh, the Ten Commandments, the Law of Moses, was essentially presented to Israel on two occasions. One was when it was first given at Mount Sinai, and then right before Moses died, almost 40 years later, Moses goes over the law again. It's the book of Deuteronomy, right? So you actually find the listing of the Ten Commandments there twice, both in Exodus 20 
The first time where God spoke audibly from Mount Sinai, he audibly spoke to the whole nation. Okay? And then uh, Moses comes down with the tablets, and the first two he's so mad because they're worshiping the calf that he throws them down and breaks them. That whole story happens then. And then uh, later on, before Moses dies, Moses then goes over the law one more time for the younger generation, because that older generation that had been at Mount Sinai, they all died <laughs> over, the, over that 38 or so years of them wandering through the Arabian desert. Okay? Um, they died because of their unbelief. <clears throat> now, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. Now, that's the whole teaching. You shall not murder, and whoever murders shall, will be in danger of the judgment. Right? The next line, I don't know how else to say this. It just terrifies me. The next couple of lines, I guess I should say. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause, and there are some translations that don't include that clause, without a cause, whoever is angry with his brother without a, a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. So what they had been taught was that if they murdered somebody, they'd be in danger of the judgment, right? right? Judgment against you. Punishment. And the Torah had said that punishment was capital. It was death. I say to you, whoever's angry with his brother. Now immediately, maybe the first thing that springs to our mind is, who's my brother? <laughs> right? That was the way that that was the way that the, the uh, many of the Jewish religious leaders wanted to get out of their responsibility to love their neighbors. When they addressed this with Jesus in Luke's gospel, they said, "Well, who is my neighbor?" Right? <laughs> love your neighbor as yourself. These two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. Well, who is my neighbor? Because we could say, like, the people that live close to us are our neighbors, but if they don't live close to us, we don't have to love them, right? It's sort of the idea. And then Jesus tells that story of the uh, Good Samaritan, as it's been told, right? Which is, like, um, offensive to Jewish people. They would not look at Samaritans as good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> they were the, the half-breeds. They stayed away from Samaria and away from Samaritans. We see that referred to a number of times throughout the writings, throughout the scriptures. Okay, But through the story, Jesus teaches us this very simple point. Whoever is close to you, that's your neighbor. So love your neighbor as yourself. Are you sitting next to your spouse? Love that person. Are you with your kids? Love them. Are you at work with other people? Love them. Are you at the grocery store? Love the people around you. Driving in the car? Love the people. Whoever is close to you, that is your neighbor. Love them. Actively love them. That's what he teaches us through that story. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause, well, who is my brother? Anybody. <laughs> okay? <laughs> Anybody you find yourself embroiled with anger at. I say to you, whoever's angry with his brother without a cause. And we may look for reason to escape the command of Jesus that way, right? We may say, well, fine, anybody can be my brother or sister. Fine. 
I, I see that. So this deals with anybody that's around me. Fine. But it says without a cause, right? And the reason I have good reason to be angry at such and such a person. <laughs> Do you though? Do I? Think of the parable that Jesus told of a person who had been forgiven an exorbitant amount of money. We might think of it as tens of thousands of dollars they'd been forgiven by their master. But then they had another friend, if you would, who owed them 20 bucks or so. And they went to that friend and they demanded they pay them back. You owe me this. <laughs> you know, $100, $20. You've just been forgiven hundreds of thousands of dollars by the master. And you go and demand that your friend pay you back the $20 they owe you. This angered the master in the story, in the parable that Jesus told. And then he, of course, disciplines, punishes the one who refused to also forgive his servant, who just owed a little tiny bit. And the reality is this. The things that people have done to you, as horrible as the reality of some of those things are. You and I, I think it would be wise for us to be at a place where we understand that we have been forgiven of so many things. Exorbitant in the degree of punishment that we deserve. And yet God has forgiven us. not because we've earned any kind of forgiveness, not because we've walked in any kind of obedience, but because of the blood of Jesus on the cross, because of what Jesus did for us, he forgives us, and we're going to get there today. I What? I can't believe it's that time already. Okay. It's that time already. <laughs> right. I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Let, let us understand a couple of things. The scriptures nowhere teach that anger in and of itself is wrong. There are times when anger is in fact right. You read through the Old Testament scriptures and you find God being angry at times. And it makes sense to me. Sometimes people have a hard time with that. I've read enough stories about the terrible things that humans do to other humans to know that, that I would be angry too. We see Jesus having anger at particular times. As I mentioned to you earlier, his anger frequently centered itself around those who were supposed to be the gatekeepers bringing people to God, were instead the gatekeepers trying to keep people from God and set themselves up as if they were righteous instead. And this angered him, whether it was through the merchandising of the temple and all of the things that God had commanded there at the temple, merchandising all of that, or whether it was just the teachings that they set up that they said, you won't even lift one finger to help. You lay these heavy burdens on people and you won't even lift up a pinky to help them. He was angry at them. We find Paul telling us in Ephesians 4, be angry and do not sin. You see, that's the caveat, right? <laughs> There are times when you and I are rightly offended and it produces in us anger. Be angry, Paul writes in Ephesians 4, and do not sin. Right? 
that's the maybe we could say the problem that we have <laughs> is that sometimes when we are angry we are given to anger and it controls us and we do things and we say things that we might not otherwise do or say Jesus had taught us that it was out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks and we're going to get to that idea here in just a second he said that all of the wickedness of the world comes from within within us listen to the words of Jesus I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment and whoever says to his brother Raka it's a, an emphatic statement that means <laughs> it means you don't have a brain it means empty headed Right? Have you ever called somebody a name or shouted something out in frustration or anger about someone to diminish them? (laughs) I'm so glad none of us have ever done such a thing. (laughs) So they had heard, they had been taught that you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. Jesus says, I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. Now the council is the 71 leaders of Israel, the Sanhedrin. That's the council. These were the official judges, sort of the supreme court of the nation of Israel. Um, Even under Roman occupation, Roman rule, the Sanhedrin had some function, though they had lost the right to exercise capital punishment under Roman authority. Uh, They did exercise that right before that. But this was a council of of leaders in Israel made up of, in Jesus' time, primarily the Sadducees and the priesthood. Uh, But it was made up of two of the primary groups, mostly the Pharisees and Sadducees, two of the primary groups of leaders in Israel. Uh, was the Sanhedrin, and Jesus is speaking to these Jews, and he's saying, if, uh, whoever says to his brother, Raka, empty head, you just, there's nothing in your head, you know, empty headed, shall be in danger of the council. See, because why do we do that? And the next line, whoever says, you fool, <laughs> never said anything like that before, um, shall be in danger of hellfire. Now, this is the first time that this idea is mentioned in the New Testament. So we need to talk about it. Hell fire. Do you hear what he says? Whoever says you fool will be in danger of hell fire. Well, I thought it was okay if I just wasn't a murderer. You see, all murder is rooted in hatred and anger. And Jesus is saying even that's wrong. Being controlled by it. Overcome by it. It's not the character of God. You see, if God is light and life and love, if God is those things and He is the very epitome of all that that is, then being in His kingdom is one where control, being controlled by anger makes no sense. 
if God's kingdom is one of perfection, where there's no more sickness and death, where there's no dying, where all the former things have passed away, then there will be no more being controlled with anger. And those who love such will be excluded from his kingdom, will be out of it. I want to make sure we understand this idea of hellfire. Uh, we sort of, I don't know how else to say it, we kind of made up this word hell uh, a little bit. <laughs> um, uh, it's a word that the um, translators use to speak of this concept, but in, um, in Israel, there was a valley outside of the city of Jerusalem. A valley is like a crevice, a deep place outside of the city. Uh, Jerusalem was built on uh, a mountain range called Zion, right? Okay, so it's sort of in this range. And there's a valley on one side, the valley on the east side is called the Kidron Valley or the Brook Kidron. Um, there's no longer a brook there, it's just dried up now, so it's the Kidron Valley now. Uh, but uh, there is, on another side of the city, outside of the city, is this valley called Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom. Now, the Valley of Hinnom was essentially the dump. <laughs> it, was, it became the place where all of the trash was taken and burned. But throughout Israel's history, it didn't actually start that way. It wasn't that. It was actually a place where false gods were worshipped during Israel's apostasy. They worshipped Tophet there, and they worshipped Molech there, where even some of the kings of Israel, among others, would take their children and they would offer their children to Molech in the name of, of financial prosperity, in the name of getting the blessing of this false god. They would offer their children. I'm so glad we progressed so far from, from that kind of idolatry where we sacrifice our children for our own material benefits. But this is what would happen in the Valley of Hinnom. And the stories go that they would beat drums regularly so that you couldn't hear the sounds of the screams and other things that were happening. There were the banging of drum, drums there as they worshipped Tophet, as they worshipped Molech in the Valley of Hinnom. And eventually it would become the place that was constantly burning because it was the, the trash dump, the, the place where you threw all of the refuse. But the main concept, the main idea is that it was outside of the city, You can read through the prophet Jeremiah who speaks over and over and over again about the atrocities that occurred in the Valley of Hinnom. Jeremiah warned the people over and over and over again and nobody listened to him and Israel was eventually carried away into captivity because of their continued rejection, their continued rebellion to their God. All of this, lots of this happened in the Valley of Hinnom. Now, the word in the Greek New Testament, the writings of the New Testament, that is most often translated as hell, is the Greek word Gehenna. Now, Gehenna is the Greek way to say Gai Hinnom, or the Valley of Hinnom. This is where the concept of Gehenna, or as you and I commonly refer to it, hell, comes from comes from this place outside of the city where the trash was thrown, where there was fires burning all the time. 
the Valley of Hinnom, a place associated with idolatry, a place associated with rebellion to the one true God. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the, of the council, but whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of, and the phrase here is the fire of Gehenna, hellfire. Everybody that Jesus was talking to knew where Gehenna was. They knew where the Valley of Hinnom was. They knew exactly what he was talking about. A place associated with apostasy and idolatry and constant burning. Now Jesus brings us to a place that you and I, maybe we can say this is his response. This is how we ought to respond to things because of this reality of anger. Anger in our hearts and its temptation to rule us, to control us whether it results in actual physical murder or not. The overflow of that anger frequently comes out in, because of the anger in our hearts, comes out in our language, doesn't it? Comes out in the way that we speak to our spouses and our children, the, the words that we say to them, the way that we speak to employees and, and bosses and to neighbors and others when we are angry, or to, you know, neighbors while we're driving on the road. <laughs> you know, anger. Here's what Jesus says our response to this anger can be. Therefore, <clears throat> because you've heard it said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in, in danger of the judgment, but I say to you that if you, if you say, Raka, empty-headed. If you say, you fool, you're guilty. You're in, in, in contrast to, in rebellion to the will of God, the way of God, by allowing our anger to control us. If we're angry at our brother without a cause, because that is true, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar... Now picture yourself, a Jewish person, bringing a gift to, to honor God, to worship God before the, the altar there at the temple. If you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, listen to that phrase. You bring your gift to the altar, but when you get to the altar, you remember that somebody else is mad at you. The amazing thing about this to me is that the natural way of my thinking is that I need to deal with my anger, right? If I'm bringing an offering before God and, and I'm harboring anger in my heart, I need to deal with it. Listen, yes, 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 a million times yes, absolutely yes, 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 a hundred thousand times yes. But Jesus gives us this incredible responsibility to be peacemakers, not only in relation to our own anger in our hearts, but even when we know that someone else is angry with us. This is what it means to be a peacemaker. Remember Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. 
he continues, and he says, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and they remember that your brother has something against you, you leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you'll by no means get out of there till you, you have paid the last penny. There's this, this real sort of situation that Jesus plays out here, that if somebody has something against you and you don't go deal with it, he may just file charges against you and then you go put, get put in prison because you weren't willing to converse, you weren't willing to work out your situation with your adversary, with your accuser. Among other things, I think this teaches us the reality of communication and how vital it is to relationships in marriages. um, The New Testament says, um, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. And I think that echoes what Jesus says here. You come to bring your gift and you realize somebody's mad at you, somebody has something against you. Immediate, don't even offer your gift at the altar. Leave it and go and deal with the situation first. Deal with this. Reconcile your relationship, he says. And that echoes that idea that's taught later in the New Testament, not to let the sun go down on your wrath. Deal with your, with your anger. If somebody's angry at you, go to them and talk about it. Agree with your adversary. The idea there is come to an agreement with your accuser. And sometimes it takes time because communication is hard because we make assumptions about what the other person is feeling or thinking or saying behind the words that they're saying, right? Because communication is more than just the actual words that are being said, right? We all know that communication includes body language. It includes attitude. It includes all sorts of things. Sometimes it's just hard. Sometimes it's just difficult to say some things. And sometimes it takes time to work that stuff out. <laughs> Sounds like somebody's like using the Keurig, like making some coffee. <laughs> you know? It drains that thing. <clears throat> Be angry and do not sin, Paul writes. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. When I think of the reputation of men and of fathers, the general attitude of much of society is that men are short-tempered, hot-headed, angry. And I have to look at my own heart and say, why, Lord, why? Why? Why is this true of me? In Luke's Gospel, when Jesus is teaching about the destruction of the temple in Israel, 
he includes this phrase when he tells them that they're going to go through tribulation and trial and difficulty that I've always found fascinating. This one line he says, in the middle of talking about how those Jews, that, that, that group of people he was speaking to, were going to go through trouble, persecution, tribulation, difficulty. Indeed, it was within 40 years the temple would be destroyed. Jesus says in Luke's Gospel, By your patience, possess your soul. And I always thought, what a weird thing to say. To possess means to have under control. By your patience, possess your souls. In the midst of facing tribulation and persecution where your family is going to be murdered, possibly or you're going to go through torture or hardship or other things, he says, by your patience, you possess your souls. Paul would tell us in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, which is patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is what it looks like when the Spirit of God is producing fruit in us. Because this defines the character of who God is. Later in the New Testament, um, <clears throat> we find, I believe it's Paul writing, and Paul says, let your gentleness be known to all. if anybody's going to be excluded from God's perfect kingdom and in Gehenna, outside of the city, it's going to be all those things that offend. All those things that cause destruction and pain and problems because His kingdom is perfect. And I, re I realize that that means that I can't be there. My anger can't be there. Not in that perfect place because I would ruin it. no wonder then to me then that since Jesus says by your patience possess your soul it's no wonder to me then that James writes that Paul writes in Romans chapter 5 that it's when we go through tribulation when we go through trouble that we can allow it to have its perfect work in us to end up producing patience and let patience have its perfect work in you he says And I realize that even in all of my anger, I would be in a different place if I was a, if 
I was a patient man. I would learn that sometimes my anger is, the re is wrong because it's the result of my own misunderstandings of things that happen around me. And sometimes it's just dumb. Sometimes it's just wrong for me to be angry about some things. <laughs> Other times I would learn that even in the midst of my anger, I could actually do something beneficial for the people around me if my anger didn't control me and cause me to act out, to lash out with words or, or even with, with actions that are detrimental. And certainly there's any kind of any kind of, of physical abuse happening, it needs to be dealt with immediately. You need to talk to somebody if you're in that kind of place. In the very bottom, I find myself, I guess, of all of these things, realizing again I am a man who has always needed a savior and I need him still so Jesus comes and he says to us that when somebody slaps you on one cheek you're to turn the other cheek I mean, if there's any time you should be angry, it's when somebody offends you by slapping you on the cheek, right? If somebody sues you to take away your shirt, give them your jacket too, he says. If somebody compels you to go with them one mile, go with them two. Don't let your anger control you. By your patience, possess your souls. And I find in myself an, an utter lack of the ability to do this <laughs> on my own. So I need the Lord to help me, <laughs> to change me. Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. I want to end with this idea of saying, hopefully you can say, I'm so glad there's a Savior who rescues us so that we don't have to be outside of the city. <laughs> right? Because there's coming a new Jerusalem, a new heaven, a new earth, where only righteousness d lives, dwells. And all those things that offend, all of the former things that pass away, praise God. But for Jesus, none of us would be there. Isn't he so kind to us? And let me mention this. Jesus doesn't only say to us, when you're slapped on the cheek, turn the other cheek. When they took Jesus and they pressed the crown of thorns in his head, they slapped him around a bunch of times. And they made fun of him and they covered him with a robe. And they pretended to bow to him. And he said nothing. The God of the universe in a human body who made these men said nothing. 
the one who could call legions of angels to dis- destroy them all, said nothing, not controlled by his anger. But instead he said, Father, eventually, Father, forgive them because they don't understand. They don't know what they're doing. This is the king that we serve. (laughs) And so I want for you and I maybe today to, we're going to take communion here in just a minute. Uh, Josh, if you want to go ahead and come up. He's going to play a song and uh, we'll get ready um, for that. But um, I want for you to examine your heart and recognize this reality of anger and its position, its status in particularly unrighteous anger and how it controls us, its status, its position uh, of being worthy of judgment. (laughs) And um, and then... um, I just want you to sit with that for a minute. I just, I just want you to sit with that for a minute and, and to pray. I just want you to think about it. Think about the Lord. I just want you to take a couple minutes. Josh is going to play a song. While he plays the song, um, I'd like you guys to come and grab a cup and, and a cracker and just hold on to them because I'd like to take this together. I'd like for us to eat and drink together. Um, we'll go through that after the song is over. Just take take them, hold them, think about the body of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, the body broken for you, the blood shed for you because of your sin, my sin, and um, and then we'll we'll take those uh, together here in just a minute. So if you want to okay. go ahead and, and play. Mm-hmm.